Turn your Bibles to Proverbs. We have ended a series in Second Peter, First and Second Peter this spring, uh, launching into a summer series called Because You Asked. What we like to do is usually go through books of the Bible. That's cut off, huh? The font must have changed. Okay. Um, what we like to do is go through books of the Bible, take a break this summer, and we ask the congregation uh, to send us some questions that, about our faith, about Scripture, uh, and we are uh, tackling those questions. Unfortunately, un- unfortunately, the series has the word asked in it, and I just keep getting hammered by my kids. I don't mean to ax anybody. It's asked. I get that, okay? You don't have to remind me. I know that. Um, and last week, we looked at the question about blasphemy. What is blasphemy? Um, of the Holy Spirit in Matthew, and First John tells us what is the sin that leads to death. So we looked at that last week. Um, if you, I know there's two questions sent in. If you weren't here, you can go on our website, podcast it, or download it, whatever you like. That was the question we looked at last week. This week, the question that was sent in from someone, um, the question is, what is true trust in God? The explanation for the question it says, a lot of times we say we trust in God, but yet our lives do not reflect that trust. And we struggle with trust in the presence of a silent God. That's where we're at. That's what question we are uh, looking at this morning. And the reason I chose this question this week is because the kids and the adults have been learning all week long um, to, to, to trust and believe uh, and that God helps us stand strong. And standing strong has everything to do with trust and faith. Standing strong in the Lord has everything to do with trust and faith. Uh, the Bible verse on day one was Psalm 18. I love you, Lord. You are my strength. This is where King David wrote about God's love and how God's love helps us. Thank you, Michelle. It's going to be a long morning. Okay. That David, although he was a shepherd, he knew God as his shepherd and that God would carry him through hard times and very difficult times because it's God's love that helps us. All right, there we go. Day two was about how family and friends help us. First Thessalonians 5.11 So encourage each other and build each other up. We learned about Queen Esther had her cousin Mordecai to help her stand strong in the Lord. And, and it was a plot to kill the Jews in the land by a wicked man by the name of Haman who, who advised the king to have all the Jews bow down and worship him and knowing that the Jews would never do that. And Queen Esther was asked by her cousin Mordecai to, to go into the king while he was on his throne. And, and you know, that, that's something you don't do. You can get killed. But to go in there and try to spare the lives of the Jews. And she did. Because she knew that her family and friends help her. All right. We're almost there, okay? Third day, Philippians 4. Don't worry about anything. Love this. Any, instead, pray about everything because prayer helps us. All right. Like Nehemiah, cupbearer to the king, called by God to go back to Jerusalem to, to help rebuild the walls. And Nehemiah was just a cupbearer, but even though he was afraid, he prayed and God you know, gave him what he needed and opened the heart of the king and and provided everything that Nehemiah needed to accomplish the task. Even when enemies against the Jews back in Jerusalem came against Nehemiah and those building the walls, uh, Nehemiah learned that prayer helps us. Day 5, Psalm 119, Your word is a lamp to guide my feet and a light for my path. 
we got to meet King Josiah. Even though his father and other kings of Israel were, were of Judah were wicked, not Josiah. Josiah brought the people back under the word of God because Josiah learned and trusted. You ready? That the Bible helps us. So he pledged to obey God's word, to trust God's word. He commanded the people and they followed and brought all of uh, the Jewish people back to and back under the word of God. And each one of these accounts, what you find is that they trusted in God. King David trusted God in dark times. Queen Esther trusted God as she went into the king's court. Nehemiah trusted God and he succeeded. And Josiah trusted God and trusted in the word of God. If you're wondering what happened at day five, I know I went to public school, but I know how to count to five. Um, We'll get there and we're going to end with day five. We saw what it meant for them to trust in God. What does it mean for us? What does it mean for you today to trust in God? Four things. Let's look at the context of Proverbs because I think it's important. We'll look at what trust means to be confident We'll look at trust being a contradiction, and I'll explain that. And then finally, we'll end with trust and the character of God. So that's where we are going. Turn to Proverbs chapter 3, please. Familiar passage to many, I'm sure. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your hearts. Do not lean on your own understandings. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. The book of Proverbs is in the section in the Old Testament called the Wisdom Literature, which includes books like Job and Ecclesiastes. And if you just turn the page in your Bible to Proverbs chapter 1, we get to see why Solomon wrote the book. He wrote most of the book. Um, And... You know, who the author is comes right out. Chapter 1, verse 1. The proverb of Solomon, he's the son of David, king of Israel. So we know. Don't let anybody tell you that, that it was not Solomon. It came, you know, 100, 200 years after. It did not. It says right here who wrote most of the book of Solomon. A book of Proverbs. Verse 2. Why did he write it? To know wisdom and instruction. To understand words of insight. To receive instruction in wise dealings. Righteousness and justice and equity. To give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discernment to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning. And the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying the words of the wise and their riddles. Verse 7 of chapter 1. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Solomon wasn't just writing this book to give us some clever ideas or some helpful advice how to enjoy life. He was teaching us that true wisdom and true success is rooted in a relationship, in a right relationship with God. God is the source of all wisdom. Solomon wrote this book somewhere between his reign, which is uh, 970 to 930 B.C. And God had come to Solomon, if you know the story. He had come to Solomon at night in a dream and said to Solomon, King Solomon, what is it that you desire? What is it that I could do for you? What, what do you want? First Kings 3 says, Solomon said, give your servant understanding mind. Give your servant an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil for who is able to govern this, your great people. Solomon knew the task that was before him and asked God to give me wisdom 
And that's exactly what God did. If there ever was a wise guy in all of Israel, actually in all the known world, it was Solomon. I've got to throw that wise guy in, right? He was able to receive. He was able to teach wisdom, success, living, great understanding and righteousness and injustice. He was able to, to help the simple gain prudence and understanding the youth to know uh, knowledge and get discretion. He says in verse 7, fear the Lord, through, through fearing the Lord. And let me just throw this in for free. The book of Proverbs, to properly understand the book of Proverbs, I, I bring this up because it's important, what we would call hermeneutics, which is the, the art and science of interpreting passage, to try to come to the Scripture knowing how to interpret what was being said, Proverbs is a book of principles. Proverbs is not a book of promises. Okay, it's a book of, of, of principles. It's wisdom literature. It's not the same approach as we did in First and Second Peter of didactic teaching, but principles. And here's what I mean. Proverbs 22.6. People use this all the time. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Proverbs 10.4, a slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. So, so, is God promising that if we raise our child in the ways of the Lord, He will love Jesus? Is He saying that if you work hard, you will become rich? Is that the promise? No. Are we commanded to raise our children in the admonition of the Lord? Absolutely. Are we called to work hard with our hands? Absolutely. But do people who love Jesus and work hard always become rich? No. Do parents who love their children and train them in the way they should go always have God-centered, Christ-centered children? No. There's some people who work very, very hard and, and go in paycheck to paycheck. There's some parents who really love Jesus and have rebellious children. Some godly people die young of cancer. Some godly people die in car accidents. Some people use drugs all their life and defy the odds to live in, and to live a ripe old age. They live a ripe old age. I think of, you know, right comes to mind is Mick Jagger, right? I mean, and Keith Richards, case in point. I don't even know if they have any blood going through their veins anymore. You know what I mean? I mean, they, they, I saw a guy in the interview the other day. I'm like, that guy's still alive heroin, drugs. I mean, you know, you're like, well, heroin don't hurt anybody. Look at uh, Keith Richards. I wouldn't do that. Okay? Proverbs are general principles to live by, not promises to stand on. And those who live wisely are generally blessed with success, with parenting and, and long life, generally. Fools, generally, speaking, defy God's principles, live twisted lives. But, the exception doesn't negate, doesn't change the wisdom that God's given us in His principles, in His Word. Solomon was a man who trusted God. Solomon was a man who, who trusted God and became, the Bible says, ruler over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the Philistines as far as Egypt. First Kings tells us that it was a great time of prosperity where people ate and drank and were happy. If you talk to a Jewish person, they'll say the time of David and the time of Solomon were the golden ages. For Israel. And although this was the greatest time of prosperity and peace, they built their temples, they expanded their border, the irony is Solomon himself did not consistently pursue the wisdom that he taught in Proverbs. He did not trust God all the time. He did, he, you know, it resulted in the end in, in foolishness in his life. 
commentator Welkies, an Old Testament commentary, says this. Let it be noted that he, Solomon, constructed his own gibbet on which he impaled himself. That is, he ceased listening to his own instruction. Spiritual success, listen, spiritual success today does not guarantee spiritual success tomorrow, end quote. So let me start by saying as we look at Proverbs 3 and tackle the issue of trust is that everyone trusts in something. Everyone trusts in someone. I don't care if you're a self-proclaimed atheist or agnostic here. You're trusting in something and someone. And whatever it is, whatever it is where you're putting your faith and you're trusted, it is forming your worldview. It is showing you about life, on, on how to live life and see life. And then shows you, or at least promotes, your behavior. I hear it all the time, especially in the political matters. Maybe you've heard it. That religion, your faith, your belief, has, has to, to be left at the door when the people of Congress and everybody is conducting political business. Leave your faith at the door. Christopher Reeves once said, arguing stem cell research, when matters of public policies are debated, no religion should have a seat at the table. Our government should not be influenced by any religion when matters of public policy are being debated. That's impossible. That's impossible. You can't be a politician, policeman, a cook, or a carpenter without being influenced of who and what you're trusting in, your faith, your reality, the things you trust in, the foundation of that produces your reasoning, your perception of the world, and therefore prompts your actions. If you're here and you don't believe in God, you're taking that by faith. You can't prove that. That's your trust statement. That's your faith statement. You, you will live your life in a certain way because of what you believe and what you trust in. Right? If you think everyone has the right to determine in his own mind what is right and wrong, everything is relative, that's your faith statement. That's what you're trusting in. You're hoping that there is no God. Your faith says there is no God. Your faith says there's no judgment day. That's what you believe in. You can't prove it. And, and, and what I want you to see is that faith, that trust that you have today has eternal implications in your life, in my life. A man by the name of uh, David Klinkenhofer, he's a columnist for the Jewish Forward. It's, a, it's a, 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 um, an organization. He wrote this letter in L.A. Times 2004 called Worshippers at the Secular Altar. Now listen to this carefully. He writes, Everyone knows that the place of religion in the public sphere is facing serious challenges. There is some confusion, however, about where those challenges come from. Is it civil libertarians? Question mark. Atheist? Question mark. Actually, no. The larger answer to the question may surprise you. What we are observing here is not what, not what it may appear to be a struggle of a religion against no religion. He writes, it is instead a battle pitting one religion, broadly speaking, against another. On one side, we have primarily the biblical faith of Jews and Christians. On the other side, secularism. If you object that secularism has no deity, remember that other recognized faiths like Zen and Buddhism likewise lack a belief in God. What is a religion then? Now listen, simply a system of beliefs based on stories that explain where life came from, what life means, and what we as living beings are supposed to be doing with our few allotted years. 
See what he's saying? You're trusting in something. Now, now the word trust, in the dictionary, if you look it up, it says to be or to place confidence in. Right? To place confidence in. Let me put the word trust up here. Did I go? You guys got me? Okay. I want to go back one. Okay, good. To place your confidence in something. In the Hebrew, the Hebrew word trust um, literally means to, to lie helpless, to, to be face down. It was actually a picture used in the Old Testament of someone, his servant, waiting on his master to command him in, in full obedience to his, to his master. So tonight when you fall flat on your face on the bed, you are trusting that the bed's going to hold you. Something like that. So biblical trust is confident. Placing, bowing, submitting to, and surrendering to God. Look what, look what Solomon says. Trust in the Lord. Submit. Bow down. Put your confidence in with all your heart. With all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your path. He couldn't be more clear. We ought to trust God. We ought to surrender to God with our whole heart. Now, when you think of heart... Don't think just of your emotions, your feelings. In the Bible, the heart has much more to do than with just feelings. It has to do with the mind. It has to do with the uh, will and the emotions. Out of the heart, the Bible says, comes our reasoning, comes imaginations, comes our intellect, comes our disposition, our conduct. You know, our speech, your love, your hatred flows out of the heart. It's a big deal. It's a huge deal. Everything flows out of the heart. And the Bible tells us that we are to, with our whole heart, trust in the Lord. And when Solomon says, lean not on your own understanding, what he's saying is, don't prop yourself up. Don't prop yourself up and, 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 and think that you have all the answers. But in all your ways, you are to acknowledge God and He will make your path straight. Not just Sunday. Christians sometimes have this perspective, this, this attitude, this idea that there are two areas of my life. There are the, the secular and then there is the sacred. Two, two, you know, so I go to a secular job or I go to a secular school or I hang out with my secular friends. And then there's the sacred, my, my Christian friends, my church. So when I listen to Christian music or I put on K-Love, you know, the Bible says that the whole earth, every inch, every corner is what? Filled with the glory of God. Paul told Timothy, everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it is to be received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So when Solomon says, trust in the Lord, we are to acknowledge the full lordship of, our, of, of him in our lives. And He will direct our paths. Our tendency sometimes is to say, okay, I have a path. I'm asking you to bless it. Instead of saying, no, God has a path and He blesses me as I walk in it. There's a big difference between the two. And that's so important. And, and if that doesn't make any sense to you or you don't see any application in that, you're in denial. And I don't mean that river, okay? You're in denial because we always move forward Right? And we have to catch ourselves. As a pastor, I need to make sure, Lord, what do, I, what, what do you want me to preach to? What book should we go to next? We're going through Acts in the fall. Okay? 
Is that my will? Is that my direction? Is that my path? Is it God's will? Is it God's direction? Is God's path? So what, 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 what Solomon is saying is, don't lean on your own understanding. Acknowledge Him in all your ways. And, and He invites us to walk in His path. And we have to fight the temptation to what? Be not wise in your own eyes. Acknowledge Him. Be not wise in your own eyes. Let, let me give you the big picture here, okay? Solomon is telling his readers, he's telling us this morning, that we cannot know God and yet follow our own understanding, our own imagination, our own philosophy, okay? Someone you conjured up in your own mind. Someone that you think, someone that you have brought into your own thinking is just you. It's not God. There is a sense of contradiction with God. Because we need someone to speak into our life the truth of in love into our lives so that we don't become wise in our own understanding, so we don't trust in ourselves. True trust in God is a relationship, and there's an aspect of it which is a contradiction. That's why Solomon says, you know, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding because you'll become wise in your own eyes and arrogant. You'll be prideful. You won't be humble. You won't submit. You won't be confident. Because it's just you. Pick and choose what you want. Has anybody, anybody an old uh, a Star Trek fan from the old days with Captain Kirk? I'm showing my age, okay? But it's a great show. There was one episode, if, if, you, like, if you like Star Trek, there's one episode with Harcourt Fenton Mudd, if you remember him. He goes to another planet, another galaxy, after he escaped from prison. He was condemned to death, but he leaves, and he becomes this ruler of this world, of this, of this planet. And uh, he, he builds these android women, these beautiful ladies that are robots, and he programs them to serve him at every single whim. He also created one robot of his nagging wife, if you know the story. Captain Kirk shows up on the planet and Mud's showing him around to all these beautiful ladies and he takes him over to this glass door with his wife in it. He opens up the door and out comes the wife and she's yelling at him with the first step. Hardcore Fenton Mud, where have you been? You know, she starts yelling at him and uh, you're up to no good. He just pressed the button. And he hits it again. She comes out saying, have you been drinking again? You miserable, good for nothing. Down he goes. But when Captain Kirk finds Lord Mud, small L, on this planet, what is he trying to do? He's trying to escape the planet. That's what he's trying to do. Right? Even though he's surrounded by beautiful android women who do everything he wants without complaint, without contradiction, without confrontation, he wants off the planet. Why? Lack of relationship. The only thing he had was himself. Just made up in robots with pretty hair and makeup. In order to trust God fully, we must be prepared for contradiction. We cannot come to Scripture with our own designer Jesus. Some com someone we made up, some someone who flatters us. We de-emphasize de the things that need to be worked on. Trusting God with your whole heart involves loving confrontation. 
Isaiah 55, 8, another familiar passage. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, my thoughts than your thoughts. That verse was not there just to say God's smarter than you. That's obvious. That verse was put there so that we would trust in God. Because the Bible is the unveiling of who God is. He revealed Himself to us. And if we had not known God by His revelation, we would be stuck leaning on our own understanding. Being wise in our own eyes. Our paths would be very crooked. You can't know someone until someone reveals themselves to you. And that's what the Scripture is. The Word of God. Reveals the character of God. The nature of God. What God is doing. It tells us who He is. Trust, trust, listen, relies on the integrity and the character of the one you are trusting in. There's a reason Scripture expressly details the nature and the character of God. Because He is calling us to trust in Him. Now, from Genesis to Revelation, one meta-narrative, and that's redemption in Jesus Christ. But I would say, right under that, is God's call for His people to trust His goodness. To trust Him. We don't always know how things are going to work out. We don't know the bridges we're going to cross. We don't know the storms we're going to face. We don't know all about the ups and downs of this life. The truth is, things don't always work the way we want them to work out in our own way, in our own understanding. But in trusting God, we have to believe that God has our best interest in mind, that He is getting glory, we are getting joy in all our lives. We, we trust His character, we rest on His promises, we trust His wisdom, His principles. God said that His intentions are good, not evil. He promised to work all things out for the glory of God and our good. He said He will never leave us nor forsake us. That's a promise. That promise and the principles of God's Word is tied to His character. I want you to see that. Dr. Larry Crabb, he wrote a book called Marriage Builder. Tells a time when he was in second grade. When he says, when I was in second grade, I dropped this bench on my foot and busted my middle toe. He actually said that blood spurted all over the place. You're welcome. And, and he howled. He said, within minutes that seemed like hours, I was laying on my back on the doctor's table with my mom, who was called by the school. She had brought me into the doctor's office. And there was this, this physician standing over me. He says he's unruffled sort of, of character who reacts to my cries of anguish slowly by just stroking his chin, examining the toe as he reached for this giant needle. When I realized, he said, the man was going to stick me with the needle right into my toe where all the pain was, I panicked. I felt no desire whatsoever to be stabbed by that needle. Helplessly, I looked at my mother, and she was smiling. He goes, not a happy smile, but an encouraging, be brave kind of smile. He said, now a woman that smiles in a situation like that either is a heartless, sadistic woman or a loving mother who wanted her son to know that somehow the horror of the moment was necessary to a good plan. He writes this, I knew my mother. I had lived with her for seven years and I had adequate reason to believe that she was for me, not against me. He says, with that realization fixed in my mind, her steady smile produced in me the desire to submit to a difficult and painful course of action and to lie still. 
I was not entirely persuaded of the doctor's kind intentions at the moment. He still looked pretty dangerous. But I have absolute confidence in my mother's goodness. From that confidence came a genuine willingness to commit myself to whatever course of action she approved, knowing that her goodness was my guarantee of eventual satisfaction with the outcome. My desire to do something unpleasant depended entirely on my awareness of the character of the one who wanted me to do it. Do you see how important it is in trusting God and resting in and be confident in His character? When Christians distrust God, when Christians distrust God, it impugns, it calls into question His character and implies that He's unreliable. He's not that bright. He does not have it all together. Trust in the Lord. He is good. Trust, have faith, knowing that He's sovereign and that He is good. What are you trusting in this morning? Where are you placing your faith this morning? What are you looking to this morning? Look at verse 7b to close. Whoops, sorry. I'm having trouble today. Look what it says. Fear the Lord and turn from evil. Fear the Lord and turn from evil. We talk about this here before as we go through books of the Bible. What it means to fear the Lord. Fearing of the Lord is not that horror movie that you saw. Okay? When it says fear the Lord, it does not mean, you know, that 2 a.m., you know, woman who's in a house by herself, it's dark. Somebody just whacked, you know, 10 people, chopped them in pieces, and she's going out to see because she hears something out there with a flashlight that's flickering. Like, that's not what it means to fear the Lord. To be terrorized. To, to be wondering what God is going to do if He's going to, you know, hit me and, and beat me. As a Christian, it's not that pounding, heart-pounding, running kind of kill-me-or-hit-me kind of fear. What's interesting, which is a great word study, if you've never done a word study, do a word study on the word fear. Get your concordance, look at fear, and see all the different times fear is used in the Bible. What you will find a couple of things that are very interesting. The fear of the Lord is used together with love, with forgiveness. Deuteronomy 10.12, And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord? To walk in His ways, to love Him, to serve Him, to serve the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul. Deuteronomy. Psalm 130 says, If you, O Lord, should mark my iniquities, my sins, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Think what He's saying. Fear the Lord, love Him. Fear the Lord, you're forgiven. It seems like the more you love and the more you're forgiven, the more you should fear. That, that's kind of like, well, is this supposed to be that way? Yeah. You would think the more He's angry with you, the more you fear Him. No, the Scripture says the more you love Him, the more you're forgiven by Him, you will fear Him. Look what He says in the rest of the verse. Your, your, your fearing God and turning from evil will be a healing to your flesh, refreshment to your bones. So, so listen, family, this is what fear of the Lord means in the Bible. Fear of the Lord is a life, now listen, centered on God that produces joy and awe and wonder before the majesty and the greatness of who God is and what God has done. 
You got that? It is a life centered on God, producing joy and awe and wonder and His beauty and His majesty of all that He is and all that He has done. Genuine fear of God will produce joy and love. If it does not, you're not understanding fear. William Eisenhower, he was a Presbyterian pastor in in an article called Fearing God in Christianity Today, says this, When we assume that the world is the ultimate threat, we give it unwanted or unwarranted power. For in truth, the world's threats are temporary. When we expect God to balance the stress of the world, we reduce Him to the world's equal. He writes, As I walk with the Lord, I discover that God poses an ominous threat to my ego, but not to me. He rescues me from my delusions so He may reveal truth that sets me free. He casts me down only to lift me up again. He sits in judgment of my sin, but forgives me nevertheless. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but love from the Lord is its completion. See, the fear of the Lord is humbling. The fear of the Lord is invigorating because it's not focused on me. It puts all the things in the world in perspective. I don't don't have to prove myself anymore. That's because fear has a way of showing us what we're trusting in. Fear has a way of showing us what what we trust in. That's why Solomon says fear is the outwork of, of trusting God. Let me illustrate, all right? Let me illustrate this for you. Here's the premise. The thing you fear the most is the thing your heart is centered on. That's what I'm saying. Another way of saying it is if you follow your fears, you will find what your heart is clinging to. If you follow your fears, you'll find what your heart is clinging to, what your heart is trusting in. What you're trusting in is what your heart needs to have joy, to have peace, to have satisfaction, to have significance, to have value, to worth and worth. Your fears will show you what that is. Suppose you, suppose in order to feel valued and worth and loved, um, you, need, you need money. You need to have financial success. Suppose that in order to feel loved and valued and worth and accepted, you need to have influence. Or you need to be somebody so that people see what kind of person you are. Then the fear, thing you fear the most is losing your job. It's not just bad news, it's devastating news. When people hurt you, or people don't like you, it's devastating to you. It crushes you. You see, if you face or you trace your fears, you will find what you're trusting in, what your heart needs the most, and what it needs the most, you fear losing it. If you're a parent, some parent's greatest fear is that their children would not be straight-A student. And what happens when they have a disability, you find out certain things. I've seen this happen. They're devastated. They don't even know where to look. They lose a, a, a sense of self. What they're trusting in is what their kids turn out to be. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't work hard and train our children. I'm not saying that. If you follow your fear, your heart will expose what you're trusting in. Whatever you're living for, the greatest fear is to lose it. What are you living for? What is captivated and and, and has your heart? Kids, money, looks, portfolio, spouse, good job, relationships. When the good becomes the ultimate, it becomes idolatry. 
So if we can figure out what we fear the most, what we fear losing the most, then we'll see what we treasure the most, what our hearts needs the most, and we'll see what we're trusting in. When any other thing is your treasure besides Christ, then the fear that it will produce, the thing you're afraid of, that thing, whatever it is, captivates you and dominates your heart and, and will crush you and will own you and will rule you and will torment you. Because they'll never last. They'll never satisfy what your heart is longing for. Acceptance, love, value, significance. Listen to what the Bible says. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord prolongs life. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord. You see, when the fear of God captivates your heart, you're free. You're free. When the fear of the Lord is dominating, controlling, captivating you, it's, it's, it's the awesomeness and the awe of God will set you free. Because God is good. We have to see what Solomon is saying. What Solomon is saying is trust in the Lord with all your heart and fear Him. Fear Him in a sense of awe and wonder and beauty. And He is controlling and, and, and dominating my life. And when that kind of fear grips your heart, you'll know God. You'll trust God. You'll love God. You'll, you'll know Him intimately and warmly and personally. Then you could say, I trust God because all that my heart longs for, forgiveness, acceptance, value, my identity is in Him. When God moves from the intellectual to the, from, the, from just concepts or to that place outside my life and I just add Him on. I have, my, I have my sacred time and then I have my secular time. But when He comes to the center of our lives and that dominating principle in our life evaluates all of life, then I can say, I fear God. What could man do to me? What can this world offer to me or take away from me that has any real eternal significance? You find yourself saying, I will trust in God if... Whatever that if is, that's what you're trusting in. Sometimes God squeezes us, doesn't He? He takes us to that place where we are, we got no place to turn but to trust in God. Maybe some of you have been there. I know I've been there. Flat on my face, got no place else to look. Sort of like Jonah at the bottom of the belly of the fish. There's only two ways out. You'll get that later. He trusted in God. So what do we say? Go do it. Go, go trust in God. You can leave now. Go trust in God. Well, how do we go from a head knowledge to a heart knowledge? How do we go from just understanding concepts and principles to a heartfelt devotion of trusting in God to know in the, in the mind objectively, but to know experientially so that it rearranges our whole life? Listen to what Jonathan Edwards says, great preacher and theologian, he, in a sermon called The Divine Supernatural Light. He describes the difference between head knowledge and heartfelt knowledge by using honey, the sweetness of honey. This is what he writes. There is a twofold knowledge of good of which God has made the mind of man capable. Two ways that we know the goodness of God through the, made possible for us. He says the first is merely notional, right, from the mind. And the other is which consists in the sense of the heart, as when the heart is sensible of pleasure and delight in the presence of the idea of it. So the heart responds because it, it, it knows, it understands, it experienced it. 
He says there's a difference between having an opinion that God is holy and gracious and having a sense of loveliness and beauty of that holiness and grace. There's a difference between having a rational judgment that honey is sweet and having a sense of its sweetness. A man may have the former that knows not how honey tastes, right? He may have an idea. He may smell it. He may see it. But a man cannot have the latter, that is to, to, to know it in the heart, unless he has an idea of the taste of honey in his mind. So what, what he's saying is you could see, you could have knowledge of the sweetness of honey. You could believe certain truths about God. But then there's the heartfelt knowledge where you not only knowledge, you know, acknowledge the truths about God, but you feel them, you sense them, you taste and see that the Lord is good. You, you experience the, the pleasure of God, being in the pleasure, uh, His pleasure, your pleasure in His presence. Honey's meant to be tasted and experienced, not just examined. How do we go from knowing to tasting and trusting? It's the gospel. Day four. The kids learn that Jesus, the eternal Son of God, trusted God the Father when He died on the cross. He trusted in the Father's plan because why? He knew the Father loved him. He trusted in the Father's goodness. John 8, Jesus says, I know the Father in an intimate way. Not only do I know Him, He says, I keep His Word. The Gospel. As we look at the cross, at the ugliness and wretchedness of our sin, we see the extent in which God had to go and die on a brutal cross. When we look at the cross... We're blown away that He was glad to, that He loved us and He values us and He wants us and would die for us. You are loved and treasured and valued so much so that God was willing to go to that extent to call you His own. When your heart captivates that, when your heart sees that in the inner part of your life, when you are centered around that truth, you begin to see the character of God, the greatness of God, the wonder of God on the cross. And we trust Him completely. He becomes the one your heart says, you're enough. You no longer trust in the abstract God of money and self or anything the world creates. Now watch this. Watch this. I'm almost finished. I want you to see this. On the cross... This is what Jesus' mockers had to say about Jesus. Matthew 27. So also the chief priests, the scribes and the elders mocked him. They said, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. They didn't get it. They didn't see it like we see it. God the Father told Jesus, trust me. Trust in my goodness. Do my will. And you'll be crushed. Unlike Adam, trust me. Trust in my goodness. He disobeyed and he died. And yet the Father comes to Jesus and says, trust my goodness. Trust my love for you. And you'll be crushed. Why? Because Jesus knew, as the second Adam, that if he trusted the Father completely and let go of his life, we can have life.
When you really see that, when you take that into your heart, you will, with utter confidence, trust the one who gave everything so that you can have everything your heart longs for. Love, forgiveness, mercy, and grace. The gospel is the pinnacle demonstration of the character and the love of God. What more do we need to trust the Lord with all our heart? To lean not on our own understandings, but to acknowledge Him in all our ways. And He will direct our path. Fear God, turn from evil. To not trust God, folks, listen, is a deficiency of the gospel. It is amnesia of the gospel. When one looks at the cross and sees all that God has done for you, you'll see how worthy He is of our trust. So if you struggle with trusting in God, go back to the cross. Go back to the cross. How wicked we are, how loved we are. Jesus trusted the Father. We can too. We can too. There's a man by the name of Sheldon Van, Van Auken. The band's come up, please. Sheldon Van Auken. Listen to this story. It's a quick one. He was, uh, Sheldon Van Auken was an American author. He's a friend of C.S. Lewis. He wrote in his autobiographical, uh, autobiographical, it's long, end of the day, autobiographical book, A Severe Mercy, this account of his conversion to Christ. Now just listen for one minute, okay? There is a gap, he says, between the probably and the proved. Okay, a gap between the probably and the proved. How was I, he wasn't a Christian, he's talking about his conversion, how was I to cross it? If I were to take and stake my whole life on the risen Christ, I wanted proof. I wanted certainty. I wanted to see him eat a bit of fish. I wanted letters of fire across the sky, but I got none of these. And I continue to hang about on the edge of this gap. It was a question of whether I was going to accept him or reject him. My God, he says, there was a gap behind me as well. Perhaps the leap to acceptance was a horrifying gamble, but what a leap into rejection. There was only one thing to do. Only one thing to do once I had seen the gap behind me. I turned from it and flung myself over the gap toward Jesus. End quote. When you know, when you really know, in your heart, of the person and work of Christ, when you see in your heart all the work He has done, you will trust Him. My prayer as we sing this song, you will trust Him. If you've never trusted Christ today, today, lay your life down. Bow down in submission to the King of Kings. If, there, if, you're, if you're battling with trust, if you've got things going on in your life, trust in His goodness. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. Acknowledge Him. Fear Him by, by placing Him in the center of your life in awe and wonder of the cross and trusting what He has for you and His good providences in your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank You uh, that not only have You spoken truth, not only have You shown us in the lives of Nehemiah, of Josiah, of Queen Esther. Father, we see what it really means to trust You through Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Even His enemy says He trusted in God. Father, we pray that as we contemplate as we taste, as we trust, as we see, as we continue to press in the truth of the gospel, we would trust you more each and every day. 
so that, Father, you would get glory. We would get joy. And our confidence would not be on our own mind, our own understanding, but in you, in your word, in your truth, and in the cross of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.